This episode may contain content of a graphic nature, including descriptions of physical and sexual violence against adults, children, and animals. Listener discretion is advised. Hi everyone, I'm Talia. And I'm Tanya. And together we are Crimes and Consequences, a true crime podcast. Hi, Tanya. Hi, Talia. Welcome back, everybody. This is our second episode on Chris Wilder. Part two. Part two. Part two. Part two. And it gets really bad. My voice is better. Your voice is better. I'm not coughing as much, but it's still a, a little painful. If you haven't done so already, I would love to have you guys subscribe or follow on your favorite app, whatever app you're listening to us on. And um, if you haven't listened to episode one, I would recommend it so then you might know what's going on. <laughs> you might be a little confused, <laughs> slightly. Talia, before we get into part two, yeah, I think we should give a shout out to our number one fan. Dave. Dave. Who's probably walking his dog right now. We adore you, Dave. Yes, we do. And I know you're excited for part two. So let's get into it. (laughs) Yeah, let's do it. All right. So as I was saying in part one, Chris was now on the run. He was in Georgia, but he didn't stay there very long. He took that Chrysler he's driving and he headed towards Texas. So now we're on Thursday, March 22nd in 1984. And that's when Chris first saw 24-year-old Terry Diane Walden in the parking lot of her college. Diane was married. She had a four-year-old daughter. She was beautiful. She had blonde hair. Many men noticed her because she was just gorgeous. And, of course, that is what Chris's MO is, is to find pretty girls and see if they want to be models. Earlier that day, she'd been approached by a man who told her she could be a model. Could be a model. She laughed later, told her husband about, yeah, hey, guess what? Somebody thought I was pretty enough, you know, to be a model. (laughs) But she'd also rejected the guy. She's in college. She's she's not out for a modeling career. No, she's got a life. Chris moved on after being turned down by Terry. He kept on his journey, and he ended up pulling over off the highway into this motel in Winnie, Texas. He was still using his partner's name and credit card, by the way. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. But he couldn't get Terry out of his head. And the next day, and this is a Friday, he backtracked and he made his way to Beaumont, Texas, which is where Terry was. Terry really didn't think much about the encounter besides being flattered. Amused, right? Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's busy with a four-year-old. She's married. She's in college. That day, she took her daughter to daycare. She was driving a Cougar. It was a new car that her and her husband had just purchased. And then she was headed off to study with some friends because they had a quiz for college. She picked up a few things at the Beaumont shopping mall. And she planned to be home in plenty of time to pick up her daughter from daycare. It was just her regular routine. Nothing unique. Terry's husband was the first to realize something was really wrong Friday evening. His daughter's daycare called to say that Terry hadn't came to pick up their child. 
And that's when he got really worried. And he remembered about the guy who offered to help her be a model and then claimed to be part of a modeling agency. And to him, I think that was a creeper factor. Yeah, maybe. I mean, right? right? Mm -hmm. If you're a guy and someone's telling your wife that, I would just assume that's a way to pick up my wife. Yeah, that's true. He called the police and the police and eventually the FBI took Terry's disappearance seriously from the beginning. Oh, that's awesome. I know. It doesn't happen very often in our stories. And they organized a grid search of the area around the mall because they were wondering if perhaps Terry didn't tell her husband that she agreed to maybe meet the guy at the mall again, or maybe he's still there pursuing other Oh, maybe. Okay, that makes sense. Law enforcement authorities knew that Chris had left Florida and Georgia in this Chrysler, and they got a report about a man driving a Chrysler, and he had a beard, and there was a woman in the passenger seat. But the person that reported it, it was actually a teenage girl, and she said that she couldn't really see that much, but it kind of seemed like the woman was leaning her head against the window. That He's seems driving weird. Chrysler. Yeah. This car had turned off through some rice fields, and that was unusual. And then this young witness said, I saw it later again. It was coming back along the rice field road, but I couldn't see the woman anymore. Mm. I'm like, mm. A massive search for Terry began in that area, but they didn't find her. For three days. Oh, no. Then they did. Her body was found bound with rope really tight. She was, I hate saying it like this, but she was bob face down in a canal near the road where the girl had last seen her. Oh, really? She was just in the water. Oh. She'd gone to the surface. An autopsy revealed that Terry had been stabbed three times in the breast. And the thrusts were so powerful that the blade had gone completely through her body. Oh, my God. Really? and that must be a big knife, too, right? Yeah, it's got to be. Wow. They do believe that she would have lived, believe it or not, because it didn't hit any organs if she would have gotten medical help soon enough. But instead, she bled out. She didn't die from drowning. Hmm. They couldn't tell if she'd been raped because... Just from being in the canal for that long in the water, there was no traces of seminal fluid. They believe she died the afternoon she was abducted. And also, Terry's car was missing from the parking lot where she was at. Every cop in the South knew now that Chris was a killing machine. They knew it was him. And he was hurtling himself through the United States, at least in the South. And very obviously slick in his approach to these victims, that he was able to take them away from what you would deem a safe place and nobody heard anything because there's no witnesses to any of this, except for the fact I talked to you about a young girl seeing them in a car, but nobody heard any of these abductions. Back in South Florida, detectives and FBI agents, they're just learning more and more about Chris. He used this idea of a modeling agent and this fashion photographer, Roos, apparently for a much longer time than they knew. 
there were many women or girls, young girls, like teens, that came forward and said they'd been approached by a man with a beard. He used a number of different aliases, but he always had a business card with him that made him seem reputable. So I guess he had different business cards with different names. Sometimes he would actually take photos of the young women. Like when he met them? Yeah. I'm going to take it back to the agency. Yep, exactly. That's what I'm guessing. Yeah. Agents and police force ended up trying to map out where Chris, you know, started, where he was going. They had a command center now. And it just showed him starting to go across America. So he went from Texas to Oklahoma City. Somehow they can trace this. They know that he spent a night at a motel there. And then on Sunday afternoon, he was seen at Penn Square Mall. Although no one really reported anything about it until Monday. And I'm let me explain why. Suzanne, Wendy, Logan, she's 20. She's a new bride. And this is spring of 1984. She was beautiful, a blonde. He seemed to really like blondes. And she wanted to be a model. She put together her own portfolio with various photographs of herself. And somehow she met Chris beforehand and then, or got his number and met him at the mall on March 25th with her portfolio. Chris, he's... This is perfect. Perfect, right? Exactly. She's playing right into his hands. Exactly. Suzanne ended up becoming a missing person. There were people that witnessed her at the mall that afternoon talking to a bearded man who had a camera around his neck. Chris had obviously kidnapped her, and he was heading north with his helpless victim in tow. He drove up I-135 to Newton, Kansas. So again, he's making his way around the United States. There he found a motel, and he brought Suzanne into it, and he beat her. Oh, no. And he tortured it. Oh. And she wasn't as lucky as Jill had been. It was the next day a fisherman found her body. It was bound on the shores of Milford Lake, but it took days to positively identify oh, her due so to the beating. Sad. Yeah. I mean, he's getting more and more angry, Tanya. He's like totally defiling yes. her face. His rage is building. He inflicted pain that was beyond the imagination of most of us. Suzanne's beautiful hair had been cut short. Oh. And he shaved her pubic hair off. She'd been cut with a sharp knife, but like teased, you know? Oh, okay, yeah. Bitten. Stabbed through the left breast, but that didn't kill her. Chris was using one of the credit cards she had had on her, and that's how the police and the FBI are able to kind of track his whereabouts. But they're always one step behind. I mean, when you're using credit cards and right. stuff, you're going to be behind. The investigators were really frustrated. He'd managed by this point, I don't know if you've kept count, but he's abducted seven women since January. Damn. And only one escaped. Chris turned up in the West after Suzanne's body was found. He was driving that cougar that I told you was stolen from Terry. And he was in Colorado on Route 70. And now we're only on March 29th, so he's just... Wow, he's in Colorado already? Yeah. Wow. And he was ready for yet another victim. 
He showed up at the Mesa Mall that Thursday. He had his camera around him, and he was looking for a particular type. He was looking for the cowgirl type okay. model. He went around to other people at the mall and said he was a photographer and he was on a specific job and needed a girl that looked like she was dressed like a cowgirl at the mall. Okay. Is- <laughs> like she's just going to show up just like a cowgirl? I don't know. Maybe. So Cheryl Benaventura, she was 18. She was exactly what he had in mind. Although she never heard of Chris Wilder, she went to the mall dressed as the perfect part for his next victim. Completely unaware. She was wearing a white sweatshirt with a Cherokee logo, blue jeans, cowboy boots, and she had a lot of chunky gold jewelry. She went there to go shopping, but she didn't plan on staying long. She was going to meet a friend soon, and the two were going to go to Aspen for skiing. Oh, fun. I know. All she needed was just a few little extra items for her trip, so it wasn't a big deal. She had thick, blonde hair, slender figure, perfect figure. She looked like a model. Somewhere in that mall, Cheryl met Chris, and he gave her that story about you could be a model. He claimed he was from a big Denver agency, and we know she walked away with him. Cheryl's friend waited for her, and she waited. There was this prearranged area where they were going to meet, this spot. Somehow, Chris managed to convince Cheryl not to go meet her friend. There's evidence that Cheryl did go with Chris willingly as the pair was seen in Silverton. And that's a little mining town on the way to Durango, Colorado. That was 100 miles south of the mall where she was last seen. Oh, wow. They stopped at a restaurant. And Cheryl's grandpa had worked there before, so she knew that restaurant. She talked with the owner. That's how they know she was actually there because he remembered talking to Cheryl. He knew Cheryl, and Cheryl said she was really excited about becoming a model. Oh, no. A man with blue eyes, a neatly clipped beard was beside her, and he was smiling as she's just so enthusiastic about this. They grabbed a bunch of donuts, and then they moved on. He's very bold. Yeah, that I, mean, I know. He goes into a restaurant just chit-chat. He doesn't even give a fuck now. No. He's getting away with it. He's on the run, whatever. For some reason, Chris didn't do anything to Cheryl for a few days. They were spotted in a few locations in Colorado and Arizona. They hung out together? Mm-hmm. I don't know what story This is weird. The night of March 30th, they checked into a motel in Page, Arizona as a married couple. Weird. What the fuck is going on? Shortly after dawn, someone noticed Chris as he whisked the blonde woman out of his room, Cheryl, and rushed her to his car. Like, they're like, mm, something weird. Something weird. From that point on, there were no more sightings of Cheryl and this man, twice her age, Chris. Cheryl's family kept up the search for her, but she vanished somewhere along the trail from her hometown to Las Vegas. They lost her. There's just no trace of her anymore. Chris wasn't done. He continued on. He had his next victim, 17-year-old Michelle Korfman. She was pretty young. She had parked the brand-new car her father had given her at the Meadows Shopping Mall in Las Vegas. And I always tell my kids, be weary because yeah. I got girls. At the mall. At the mall. 
right? Don't talk to anyone. And Stranger danger. Stranger danger. Yeah, seriously. And this is Las Vegas. It was April Fool's Day. Michelle and some of her other friends, they're young women, were at the mall. And there was this guy. He was a fashion photographer. And he was looking for models. He had a portfolio out of photographs he'd taken of really beautiful women. And he showed all these really pretty teenage girls this. He had an expensive camera. He had a leather case. And he promised that the potential models would get a good fee up front. And more important, that he was working with the top modeling agencies out there. Even so, three of the girls were like, no. Yeah. (laughs) No, thank you. They didn't want to leave the mall with him, which is what he wanted them to do. He he was going to try to get a group of girls to go to his studio. He didn't seem angry or disappointed when they didn't want to go. He just sat on this bench near a stage. And just so you know, there was a contest going on. It was, I believe, a young girls, and I think younger than teens, modeling contest. Not modeling. What do they call it? What are those shows? Like a fashion show or something? Beauty. What is Beauty pageant? Beauty. Thank you, I guess. Okay. Yeah, like you oh. see on TV. Yeah. So if you think about it, there's this younger beauty pageant and he's trying to set up like he's a professional because he's going to get people that want, that are interested in that sort of stuff to come around. And he's got his card. He's got his camera. He's got his portfolio. Portfolio. Hell yeah, he seems really legit. Right. One of the mothers in attendance, her daughter, was a professional. That's what I'm calling it. What is? Help me out, Tanya. What are those mothers? (laughs) The pageant moms. The pageant moms? Is that what they're called? Yeah, I think so. She was one of those. And she's taken pictures of her daughter on the stage. And she actually captured a picture uh, Chris. I've seen that picture. Yeah, see? Yeah. I knew you knew this case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I saw that picture. Yeah, it's out there. We'll have yeah. to include it with the story. So this beauty contest, when it was over, he just kind of creeped everybody out by lingering around. Several people saw Michelle talking to him. And then the two of them headed slowly towards the exit. So there's this, I mean, this is a a group of people. And he he's doesn't not care even, who sees him. Right. And they see them walking towards the exit. And then Michelle's gone. Her prize car, brand new, perfect condition, that was found days later in a parking lot behind Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas. Chris left Las Vegas, and Michelle was with him at least part of the day. By April 4th, Chris was alone again. And he's now driving that cougar. Although it wasn't known at the time, Michelle was dead. Eventually, her unclaimed unidentified body lay in the Los Angeles County morgue. Oh, damn. Took to Los Angeles. On June 15th, when Nevada and California authorities finally connected her corpse with a beautiful 17-year-old who had vanished from Las Vegas, she'd been missing two and a half months. Oh, how awful in for her family. Oh, unidentified. Oh, that makes me so sad. I know. He made the FBI's 10 most wanted list. Wow. Everybody was looking for him. But this fucker. He just seemed to get away with he everything. Got lucky. The 10th victim may have lived because she didn't argue or threaten him. She played helpless 
and that probably is what saved her life. On April 4th, Tina Marie Rosico, she's 16, was headed to apply for a job at a deli in Torrance. And that's one of the many cities that border South Los Angeles. I have been to Torrance. You have? Yes. Oh, I had well, a friend you... who lived there, my friend Jody. Oh, she lived in Torrance. She lived in Torrance. There you go. Tina wasn't looking forward to the job because it just paid minimum wage. But she, <laughs> she... She's like probably like, I need a job, I guess. Yeah, because she was with a single mom and her mom needed help. So, okay, you got to do what you got to yeah. do. She was a survivor. She wanted to pull her own weight. When she encountered Chris, she was just easy prey for him. He came up to the outside of the deli, and he's not frightening at all. He's just an old man with a beard and friendly blue eyes. Okay. Uh, he's not that old. But he, yeah, I know. He's way young. He's probably now. like 38 and, or something, right? And now my like creeper radar goes off, yeah. but she's young. He told her that she was just the right type for an ad campaign for a company he was working for. She saw his camera, and he had all this. He had extra gear with him, and she felt comfortable. She was a little bit different than some of the other girls. She was a little bit overweight, and she wasn't used to somebody being told she could be a model. And she was really flattered and intrigued. And he offered her $100 if she would go to the beach near Santa Monica with him. And just pose for some ad shots. <sighs> to her, that was a lot of money. So she agreed. At first, it was fun. Until later, she realized that the wind, like, it was getting chilly. The wind is blowing. And there was only those two left on the beach. Like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And she told Chris, you know, I got to get home. I'm, my mom's waiting. But he kept persisting that she stay. And then he got angry with her. Oh, no. He told her, your modeling days are over. And he dragged her over to his car. He pushed her into the back seat. And he held her down as he tied her arms behind her back. And then he looped this rope between her ankles. So she's being hogtied, mm -hmm. basically. Next thing she knew, the car's racing away from the beach and headed outside of Torrance. She's just trapped there. For six hours. Oh, that's terrifying. And then the car slowly went to a stop. Chris and Tina were still in the Cougar, although now it had different plates. It had some New Mexico plates that Chris had stolen. Chris had been stealing along the way, credit cards, other things, in an effort to hide his identity. But he still was using his partner's credit card. What a dumbass. He headed out of Los Angeles County to El Centro, California. Do you know that? Have you no, been there? I haven't been there. And he checked into a motel. He had a quick little nap, and then he hit the road again with Tina in the car. They crossed the desert into Arizona, and then he went north to Prescott, Arizona, which I've been to. You have? I have. They stayed the night at a motel there, and then something changed. Maybe it was the fact that he saw himself on the 10 most wanted list. Nobody really knows. But there's no sightings, no motel receipts, nothing for four days straight. And keep in mind, they're on his tail. They're yeah, just behind they're him. they're just behind him. During those four days, Tina was subjected to multiple rapes. She didn't fight him. She was just very passive during all these encounters. She listened to what Chris said. 
listen to him talk about his fantasies. Yeah. Gross. His obsessions, his hopes, his dreams. His hopes and dreams. His fears. Oh. And somehow her just listening and caring about pretending to care about him, sued them. He just needed someone to talk to, Talia. Right. Someone you just know, to understand him. Just to listen. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. He can call, what is it, betterhelp.com? <laughs> I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> whatever. For whatever reason, Kristen killed Tina. That's why I'm guessing he didn't, but I don't know. He kept her with him, and he headed east. It didn't take long before Tina developed Stockholm Syndrome. Oh, no. Yeah, and you know what that is. Yes. For those that don't, it's an intricate psychological process that basically turns your mind inside out. In other words, she was brainwashed. She was kidnapped, terrorized, raped, taken far from home. The fact she survived is amazing. And Chris was being kind to her. It sounds weird to say. It does. When someone goes through that and then eventually their captor is nice – and gentle and uses a soft voice, it can have it can create that Stockholm syndrome. He didn't kill her. She hoped he wouldn't. And she thought if she just listened to him and did whatever he asked, she'd survive. But as I said, things began to change. They crossed into the Indiana state line. By that point, Tina was prepared to do whatever Chris asked of her. He convinced her that even when she was out of the car and away from him, he could still hurt her. In order to stay alive, she'd have to follow his orders. In Gary, Indiana, on April 10th, Chris ordered Tina to go to the Westlake Mall and find him a girl. No. Yes. No. Yes. He gave her a script. Oh, my God. That she had to use to get the victim to go with her. Basically, the script went along the lines of offer a pretty girl a job, a modeling job, and get her to the car. And Chris just sat there and waited until 16-year-old Donette Wilt arrived with Tina. They got into the car and the cougar sped away. Tina was no longer the prime captive. Donette had taken her place. She was now bound, gagged with duct tape in the backseat of the car. Can you imagine how Donette felt wondering about Tina? Yeah, I'd be like, what the hell? The girl that led her there. Tina was in some sort of trance. Like I said, it was like Stockholm Syndrome. It's just sad. She wouldn't help Donette. She didn't look at Donette. So now you have the FBI and the police, and they're looking at credit cards, partners' credit cards, trying to find information. They know it was last used in Arizona, and they were concentrating their efforts there, but they're behind him, and they didn't know what his next move was because he, he'd been zigzagging. He crossed, so you know, Tanya, six thousand miles before they tracked him holy shit he did go from california to gary indiana i mean that's like all the way across the country and started in florida yeah and started in florida he went all over the place on april 11th the credit card that they'd been tracking was used at a motel in southeast of rochester new york jeez he's in new york they went there no one recalled seeing the guy that used that They couldn't describe who it was, and they're behind them still. That same day, a tractor mechanic was driving on a two-lane road in the woods near Penn Yan, New York. He was lost, and he was about to turn around when he saw this young woman running towards him. She was almost naked. Her breasts were red with blood. 
he stopped his truck, jumped out, and he helped her into the passenger seat, and then he took her to the hospital. Donette survived. Wow, that was Donette. Damn. She had stab wounds to her chest. Oh, jeez. Oh, my God. By only luck, okay, they didn't pierce her vital organs. And she was eventually able to talk to the FBI agents. So he had taken her to the woods, half naked, stabbed her and left her for dead. But she didn't die. And I love that part. I know, me too. It happens so infrequently in our stories. I know. Not Unfortunately. It's not happened enough. The FBI agents gave her mug shots. And of course, she identifies Chris. He'd gone from Florida to Georgia, Louisiana, Alabama, Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Colorado, Utah, Nevada, California, Arizona, Indiana, Ohio. And now he was somewhere south of Lake Ontario between Buffalo and Syracuse, New York. Jeez. It's a lot of fucking miles to our non-U.S. listeners. That's a lot. That's a fucking lot. That's a lot of driving. Donette's statements shocked police when she told them that Chris had a girl with him. Like, oh, what? yeah. That's right. Yeah, and that right. this girl was an accomplice. She told them about how this girl she knew as Tina came to the mall in Gary, Indiana when she was applying for a job. Tina lied to Donette to get her out to the car where Chris was waiting. She described what Tina looked like. So she's about 16, pretty, but a little bit plump. And when she'd followed Tina outside the mall, she'd been led to that cougar. And then, of course, the man with the beard. He pulled out a gun. That's, it was a 357 Magnum. And that's how eventually he was able to get her in the trunk. And then he bound her hands and feet. Donette was subjected to electric shock torture, uh. along with a lot of other abuses while Tina was there in the room. Again, she'd been bound and gagged during the time that she was traveling hogtied in the back seat, and she was hidden beneath a rack of clothing Chris had strung up. She believed, like, escaping was hopeless. At night, she would be hustled between different motel rooms because they were always moving around. And she was bound most of the time. She recalled that they went through Niagara Falls and that Chris and Tina got out to look at the falls. Oh, damn! While she was in the backseat of the car, bound. He was so confident. He completely controlled Tina. It's an invisible tether. Yeah. But it's in her mind. It's so sad. On April 12th, in the early morning, everybody woke up and Chris turned on the television. Tina's mom was on the screen. She was on Good Morning America, and she was begging for any information out there regarding her missing daughter. This seemed to spook Chris because... That's when he panicked, and he took Tina and her and shoved them, like, into the car really fast. He drove to this narrow, isolated road. It's the road that the tractor mechanic eventually found her on. She knew he was going to kill her. She knew that's the end. But she was blindfolded and bound and gagged. He took her out of the car, and he told her to walk a certain way and keep walking. She could sense when they had walked through some woods into an open field, and he forced her to the damp ground. He clamped one hand over her mouth, and he pinched her nose shut with the other 
But she tossed and she turned her head back and forth. I mean, she's trying to live. Live. Yes. And then it felt as if he hit her really hard in the chest and twice in the back. But she's blindfolded and the adrenaline's rushing. And she didn't realize that she'd been stabbed until she could feel this warm wetness dripping down her, her blood. She forced herself to lay perfectly still and take really shallow breaths and try not to breathe as much as possible. She wanted Chris to think of, obviously, she was dead. She could hear him standing over her. He was breathing really heavy. And then finally she heard the sound of footsteps walking away from her. Oh, my God. This must have been fucking terrifying. I know. I can't imagine how, with your adrenaline pumping, your heart is just pounding. How do you breathe shallow breaths? It's, it's impossible. I, I, I don't know how I how I would be able to do that in that kind of state. No. I no. can't even do it at, like, a kid's zone. I know, right? There's too many kids I know, around. I'm like, I mean, have you ever tried? It'd be insanity. Eventually, when she felt it was safe, she took the blindfold off, but she had to do it basically by trying to rub it. Oh, because she was still bound. Yes. And because of the blood, it was possible for her to slide her wrists out of the bonds. Oh. Yeah. And then she was eventually able to untie her ankles. And run like the wind. No, she was still really disoriented. No. no. But that sounded good, Tanya. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I mean, she'd been stabbed. Yeah, that's true. She's like, and she has no idea where she's at. So she's trying to run. She's staggering out of the woods as best she can. You ever ran and staggered at the same time? I don't run. (laughs) You haven't been drunk enough. I ran and staggered at the same time. It's not pretty. But that's when she was found. Yeah. By the tractor mechanic. She told the FBI everything she knew, but they still didn't know where Chris was going. He could be anywhere. Yeah, honestly, he really could. And he's not done, Tanya. Fuck. His next victim is Beth Dodge. She's a 33-year-old wife, mother, and Sunday school teacher. She didn't fit his profile in any way, shape, or form, except that she was a female. He saw her in the East View Mall near Victor, New York, and she pulled up in her gold 1982 Pontiac Firebird. She was going to meet a friend for lunch, and Tina and Chris waited an hour for her to go in have lunch, and then come back to her car. That's when Tina sprung into action and approached Beth, saying she needed help. Tina lured her back to the car where Chris was waiting, and then he ordered Beth at gunpoint to toss the keys to Tina. They immediately went to a gravel pit where he made Beth get out of the car, and he shot her in the back. Why? Just because? I think he's just totally lost it. They left behind the Cougar and hopped in the Pontiac, and now they had a new car. Mm -hmm. There you go. Yeah. New car. Beth's body was found only a few hours after she died. And so was, yeah, so was the Cougar that had once belonged to Terry, remember? Yeah. It took only a short time for investigators to just have this national wide alert out for Beth's missing car. And, I mean, we're talking about a stolen gold firebird, so that should get some attention. Yeah, you'd think. How many gold firebirds were there in 1984? I mean, there's probably a lot. A lot. But But it does stand out. Yeah, it does stand out. Shortly after 9 p.m. that night, Tina was in shock. Chris 
had decided to drive into the airport access road in Boston. And she could tell you he was following these signs to the Logan Airport. She thought, okay, I'm going to die. This is it. Oh, really? He's Yeah, what is killed, he doing? Yeah. He's killed multiple people now. She knows this. Instead of killing her like she thought would happen, he pulled out, are you ready for this? A thick chunk of bills, and he handed it to her, telling her to buy a ticket to Los Angeles. What? Yep. Wow. She was in disbelief for a few moments, and then she got out of the car. And she bought a ticket, and she headed home. Wow. Are you kidding nope, me? Nope. On a red-eye flight. Damn. He dumped her off at the airport, told her to go home. And gave her the money for the ticket. Shit. Crazy. That's crazy. 3,000 miles away from New York State, Tina took a cab from the LAX airport to Hermosa Beach. She was almost home. But she didn't call her mom. She didn't call her boyfriend or the police. Instead, she wandered into the shop that had sexy lingerie. What? And started picking out underwear. She's just so traumatized. I know, right? That's what I'm thinking. She's so traumatized. Poor Tina. And... We don't know all the details of what she went through right. through all of this. And she was still under his control. At some point, she's looking at underwear. And during this bizarre shopping spree, Tina walked up to the clerk at the counter and blurted it out, I've been kidnapped. Wow. But before the clerk could stop her, she left. She ended up going to the police department. Huh. And they questioned her. She looked at them with eyes of shock. For the record, she is not normal. She's in a state of shock. And she said, quote, I've been with a madman, end quote. She was taken to the hospital. She had physical wounds. Her breasts bore peculiar dark bruises that doctors said had came from multiple electric shocks. She lost a lot of weight. She looked exhausted. And the worst part was the psychological damage. A psychiatrist questioned Tina gently, trying to draw out just the top layer of the horror she'd been through, saying, quote, she'd been terrorized far beyond ordinary threats to someone's life, end quote. Eventually, she told the police everything. On that Friday, that very day, Tina had walked into the police department The man who released her, Chris, was on the prowl still. There was a 19-year-old girl in Wenham, Massachusetts. Her car had stalled beside the road, and she was sitting in it. And he stopped to help her. What a gentleman. Do you need a ride? She said, yeah, sure. He said, I'll take you into town. We'll get this taken care of. Eventually, she realized that he wasn't heading the right direction. And she glanced at him, and she also realized something else. He looked familiar to her. Oh, no. He looked like somebody she'd seen on TV and on these news bulletins. She actually realized she was sitting with oh, Chris shit. Wilder. Oh, shit. Can you imagine? No. No, Fuck, no, no, so no, no. No. They came to a stop sign, and obviously Chris slows down, and this girl pushes open the car door and gets out. Oh, thank God. She hit the ground running. Didn't look back. And ran to this porch of a nearby house. Of course, he's driving, realizes this, and he he speeds off. He's disappearing down the road. She's pounding on this door and 
Sometime that Friday morning, Chris crossed over to New Hampshire, and he's headed to Colebrook. He was only eight miles from the Canadian border. The world was closing in on him, and he pulled into this gas station. It's about 1.30 on April 13th. He got out of this firebird, and he walked around casually, acting like everybody else, put some gas in his car, went to go pay the cashier, and he asked, you know, how far is the Canadian border from here? Just curious. Just curious. <laughs> but that day, Chris's luck ran out. Two New Hampshire state troopers were paying their tab for lunch in a little restaurant just down the street. And Colbrook, it only has 1,200 people. In the oh, whole. it's a little town. It's a little town. And there's this firebird that's gold. Yeah. Hmm. And a stranger there. This trooper, his name was Leo, he went by Chuck, and his partner, Wayne. They spotted the firebird at the gas pump. These two police officers, they were pretty confident this was Chris. And they parked across the street just to get a good look at him when he walked to his car. He was the right age, right height. He looked like the guy they'd been looking for. But he seemed really calm for somebody that was on America's (laughs) 10 Most Wanted list. (laughs) The two cops eventually went to the gas station, and they called out to Chris as he was approaching the car. Hey, 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 wait a minute. We just want to ask you a couple questions. Yeah, hang on there. Chris looked at him for an instant, and Chris sprinted for the firebird, and one of the police officers drew his gun. And almost in slow motion, they noticed Chris pull out his three fifty seven Magnum and is holding it in his hand. One of the officers literally leapt on top of Chris through the driver's door of the Pontiac because he made it into the Firebird. There was a struggle, and both men were fighting, and then there was this loud boom. Oh, no. Well, you know who had the gun. Yeah. The one officer kept his gun pointed at the gold Firebird, and he's he's just watching in shock. His partner just falls back toward him in this awful stumbling gait. He screams out, I'm hurt, and there's blood. He's now limping Oh no! back to the police car. And there's no movement in Chris's car. But the detective who's not shot isn't taking any chances. Yeah, because only one shot has gone off, and his partner got it. Then suddenly, there's another shot. Oh. Chris shot himself. What? Yep, with his 357 <gasps> Magnum. Oh, my God. Right in the heart. Ooh. Blew it apart. Oh, shit. I did not see that coming. Yes, he did it. Right in the heart. Oof. When Chris shot himself, it actually injured the other officer. What? Mm-hmm. Critically Damn. injured him. Damn. It passed through Chris's body, front to back, and then penetrated this trooper's chest. That's crazy. It just missed his liver by an inch. A number of items were recovered from Chris's car, including the gun, ammunition, handcuffs, rolls of duct tape, rope, a sleeping bag, his business partner's credit card. Damn, he was still using that. A homemade electrical cord that was used to torture some of his victims. And you know that book, The Collector? We talked about that in another yes. episode. In which a man keeps a woman in the basement against her will until she dies. Yeah. He had that there. It, it, it appeared he'd read it multiple times. Ew. 
a lot of the victims' families were really upset, obviously, by Chris's yeah. death. They want to see they wanted, him and the, sentenced. And, and they want to know exactly what happened yeah. to their daughters. And they didn't. Sherry Bonaventura's body was eventually found on May 3rd. The remains of Beth Canyon, Rosario Gonzalez, and Colleen Osborne, they were never found. Aww. Nope, never That's found. Sad. Of all the terrible things Chris did, leaving these families just wondering... I mean, it was, it was horrible. Yeah. And what he did. What he did to all of us is yeah. fucking horrible. After Chris's death, the parents of Rosario Gonzalez, they went to Chris's property. And they decided they wanted to see if their missing daughter was buried there. Oh, jeez. They got arrested. Four they members, did? Four members of the family for trespassing. Wow. They filed a claim against him for $50 million, but they didn't win. Oh. And that's the story. What the hell? Damn. And I told you before, I read a bunch of books on this. And the truth is, we don't really know what happened to a lot of these girls because only Chris knows and he took it with him to the grave. We only know really what happened when Tina became involved and because of the survivor. And the other survivors. Yeah. Yeah. So that is the story of. Wow, that was a fucking mess. Chris Wilder. Damn, he was crazy. And keep in mind. If you didn't listen to part one, he lived in Australia for a while. Yeah. (laughs) He was all, like, he literally was all over the place. He was all over the place. And, yeah, he didn't do, we know he raped at least one, uh, multiple people in Australia. So did he commit murder there? We don't know. We don't know. Probably. Yeah, really. Allegedly. Well, thanks, Talia. Thank you. And I want to thank everybody for taking the time to listen to this episode. If you like this and you want some more that aren't made public, you can go to patreon.com slash TNT crimes. And that is that would be the letters TNT. And we release one a week for our subscribers. That is not given to the rest of the public. And you get the weekly public episode, early release, and ad-free. Absolutely. You don't have to listen to those damn commercials. I know. (laughs) Or spend time fast-forwarding through them. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That's true. (laughs) You can also uh, get the same stuff if you are listening on the Apple podcast by just hitting subscribe. We also have a website, crimesandconsequences.com. We have Facebook, Instagram. At Hardcore True Crime. And that's about it. Yeah. Thank you guys for putting up with my voice (laughs) because throughout this whole episode, it's slowly going, going, (laughs) gone away. Well, thanks again. And until our next episode. Don't kill each other. Bye. Bye.